Hello, uh, good evening. I am very pleased to welcome you all to this Latrobe Asia launch of the first issue of Blue Security. Uh, Blue Security is a new maritime affairs series that provides strategy papers dealing with uh, crucial regional maritime security issues. Uh, so this first issue of Blue Security is on a joint agenda for maritime security with Southeast Asia. Uh, and so today, in today's session, we're going to be considering this question about uh, how Southeast Asia and Australia might pursue a joint agenda for maritime security. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Beck Strading. I'm the Director of La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University in Melbourne. And I would like to start the event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Uh, they are the traditional custodians of uh, upon the land uh, of the land upon which La Trobe University Bandura sits. So uh, this is the land that I am currently uh, sitting on. So I would like to also pay my respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who might be present with us this evening. So this first issue uh, of Blue Security has been written by our our wonderful colleagues at the Asia-Pacific Development Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue, also known as AP4D. Uh, and this first paper proposes a set of pathways for Australia and Southeast Asia to develop a joint agenda for maritime security. As I mentioned, it's the first paper in our new series. And so this uh, event is really a launch both of the first issue, but also a launch of the series. And we're really excited to see this uh, coming out into the world. So this Blue Security series has been uh, a work in progress for over a year. We've been working on uh, commissioning papers. We've been working on uh, trying to decide what issues it's going to cover. So this is a really uh, important event for us, a culmination uh, of the work, some of the work that we've been doing on Blue security and certainly a culmination of the work that AP4D uh, has been doing on this first issue. Uh, so Blue Security, just to give you some background, is a collaboration between Latrobe Asia, Griffith Asia Institute, the University of New South Wales, Canberra, the University of Western Australia's Defence and Security Institute and AP4D. Uh, the Blue Security Program engages with and facilitates high quality research on issues of critical maritime security across the Indo-Pacific. So it's my great pleasure to work uh, in this collaborative project. It's a really important project and we're really grateful uh, that the program has the assistance of the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade which has really enabled uh, a lot of cooperation, particularly between Australian academics and academics and experts in Southeast Asia. So I'm delighted to be joined by our expert panel to discuss the findings of this first issue. Uh, I will first introduce Melissa Conley-Tyler, who is the Executive Director at Asia-Pacific Development, Defence and Diplomacy Dialogue. Uh, importantly, uh, was one of the, the lead authors on this first issue and one of our collaborators on uh, this broader Blue Security Program. So welcome, Melissa. It's great to have you here. 
I would also like to welcome Aristio Rizka Damawan, who is a lecturer at Universitas Indonesia and also a PhD candidate uh, at the Australian National University. Uh, it's great to have you along, Aristio. You've been working with us uh, on various aspects of the Blue Security Program as well. I'm really grateful for you uh, attending tonight's events as well. Last but certainly not least, we have Charmaine Willoughby, who is an Associate Professor at the De La Salle University in the Philippines. Similarly, uh, we have been collaborating with Charmaine on uh, issues to do with maritime security. In fact, Charmaine was the first author that we commissioned to write a short piece on the Philippines' approach to maritime security under a new government uh, last year. So welcome, Charmaine. It's great to have you on board. So we have about 15 minutes uh, at the end of the session for some Q&A, but I would like to first ask Melissa to present a summary of the paper and its key findings and contributions. So I'll hand the virtual microphone over to you, Melissa. Thank you very much, Beck. Um, uh, my name is Melissa Conley-Tyler and I'm broadcasting today from the lands of the Anawan people um, in the high country in New South Wales and pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, Beck, it's fantastic to have reached this point. So um, I've been lucky enough to be involved in the Blue Security Consortium right from the beginning. And so I want to thank Beck, Latrobe Asia and all the partners, UNSW Canberra, UWA Defence and Security Institute and Griffith Asia Institute for working together on this. Um, what I'm going to talk about is, should be nice and quick. Um, so in 10 minutes, I'm hoping to tell you quickly what is AP4D, what is the process we went through to create this paper, and then um, what are the main points in the paper itself. And so I'm hoping I will whet your appetite, that you will enjoy hearing what's going to be in there. And when you get the beautiful copy in your hands in just a day or two, um, you can enjoy that. Uh, from, uh, from there, though, I'm probably going to step back because AP4D are not the experts. What we do is we bring together the experts. So I'm really delighted that two of the people involved in this process are here today and that Pakaristo and uh, Social Professor Charmaine can take you through um, what, what you know, the, the deeper knowledge that's in there. So in my quick introduction, um, in terms of what is AP4D, um, some of you know as well, I can see people on the call who have been involved in our working groups and our papers, and it's great that we keep telling people what we do. Um, we've only been going 18 months, and we're very much a tripartite initiative uh, where we bring together defence, diplomacy and development, like it says on the box. Um, we are funded from defence and from DFAT, and we are housed at ACFID as the peak body for the development sector. And uh, what we're pushing is the idea that in a difficult and contested world, you need all the elements of statecraft working together. Uh, we're really delighted to see much greater use of that, that language, that thinking about, you know, respecting and resourcing all the different elements of Australia's statecraft. Um, we, uh, we have a great group of people behind us, and I, I, I don't know if any of them are on the line here today, but I hope if any of them are, they can see themselves there. Um, we're also very lucky to have, um, you know, that, as I say, that strong funding relationship that's enabled us to work very quickly to produce papers looking at important relationships. So to look at Southeast Asia, to look at Australia's relationships with the Pacific, um, to really get that all tools idea 
um, into the political debate. And we're delighted that it really is a bipartisan commitment um, to this idea of all tools. And to really push those ideas, um, both of all tools generally, but also the specific papers we do, getting those ideas about how can Australia build stronger relations with the region? How can Australia build a shared future with the region? So the process we go through for each of the papers um, is usually quite lengthy. You know, it can take six months, it can take eight months, it depends. Um, we do background research. We bring together a large group of people to talk about the issues. From that, usually a smaller group will coalesce, of so people who are genuinely interested and who want to take this discussion further. In this case, uh, we then went through a review process. That's what it's like working with academics. Thank you. And now we're able to send you to prepare an options paper for you. And I suppose there is a difference in what we do from, say, more academic papers. Um, a lot of times, you know, academic work by necessity has to be backward facing and it will often talk about the negatives because there are always negatives. Our job is to try to fill a slightly different market gap, which is to say to policymakers, hmm, here is a practical future facing solutions oriented proposal. Have a look at it and see what ideas you can take. So we were delighted uh, for this. We had a, a truly extraordinary group in terms of people who are coming from across defence diplomacy development, um, people who are from Australia and from the region. Um, and so I'd like to thank every single one of them. Again, I'm not sure how many are on the call, but um, any time people give us, we treat very seriously. We slavishly take down all the ideas and then our job is to try to synthesise them. So in terms of what's in the paper, well, the first thing we say very strongly is that this matters, okay? And sometimes that's a message that has to be put out there. If you think of the millions of things that uh, policymakers are dealing with and grappling with, um, reminding of importance of topics, putting it up, elevating it, I think is very important. Um, in this context at the moment, I would say Australia is very much looking for things it can work with on Southeast Asia. We've set that as a priority and you can see it over and over again in the minister's statements about, you know, a shared future with the region. So choosing a shared priority issue, a thing that both of us care about, I think can contribute to our relations in Southeast Asia and, of course, directly contribute to some of Australia's security and economic interests. Um, in terms of, you know, listening to the, the, the Southeast Asian voices in the paper, um, I, I mean, I always feel <laughs> there's a difficulty whenever I write a heading that says Southeast Asia thinks, <laughs> you know, that there's not one thing <laughs> that all countries and all people in Southeast Asia think. But there were some themes that came through, some common interest. So, you know, um, issues around uh, territorial disputes, shape strengthening international governance, um, issues around grey zone activities, um, the importance of, you know, sustainability of maritime resources. Um, and we, for example, just brought out another paper last week on, on how Australia can be a partner in combating um, illegal, unregulated and unreported fishing. Huge issue for the region, something Australia can, can do, be a real leader in. And then, of course, you know, which I, I think this would be the common interest of all Southeast Asia, Economic growth and development, how can this be part of it? 
Okay, so in terms of the Australian perspectives, I think we found, you know, there was a strong sense um, that, uh, you know, that maritime security issues are important to Australia, no question. They're important across development, across diplomacy, across defence, all of them care. But there was a real sense of, oh, gosh, there are so many people involved in this. There are apparently more than 20 federal government departments and agencies that all have some sort of um, connection with maritime security. And we don't have a formal definition of it. And we don't have a clear strategy. We have some sub-strategies. So, for example, we have a civil maritime security strategy. But the idea of bringing it all together, that whole of government effort, that is, of course, a lot harder to do, but that is exactly what we need to do if we want to have the most impact. So in terms of the vision we put, and we always put the vision very high, it's about what does it look like? You know, what if Australia and Southeast Asia develop a joint agenda for maritime security, what does that look like? So we put in a number of elements here, you know, the all of elements of statecraft, absolutely. Um, the idea of partnership is absolutely crucial. Um, engaging with the region on Australia's own behalf, not at the behest of someone else, for example. Um, areas Australia has knowledge and expertise where it can be a leader, where it can share that, where it can provide capacity building. Um, things like where we can work together on research and development. Um, a sense that Australia is a development partner has you know a, a real capacity to address some of the human development issues that are at the root cause of some maritime security issues we're talking about and Australia's role as an advocate for international law. Um, we talked a bit about First Nations uh, foreign policy which is a, which is a, a something that the Australian government is currently putting into place and what possibilities that might have um, on maritime security. Uh, and that strong sense of Australia putting gender equality as an important part of its foreign policy and its de development policy and making sure that that's part of what we do in the maritime security area. So we then came up with, I think there are seven, when we get to the last slide, we'll, we'll check. So we then came up with seven different pathways of how can we try to get to that vision. And not surprisingly, one of the first ones was look at what we're already doing and enhance that, you know. So we are doing things like supporting implementation of the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific. What more can we do? We do a lot of maritime capacity building. We provide training. We can help on frameworks and human resource development. The question is, you know, what's already there and how can we expand that out? Very often what we'll find is Australia has a great pilot program on something. So um, I think Camille is on the line, um, you know, great pilot program looking at uh, women in, um, in security uh, in Southeast Asia. Can we expand that? Can we do more with that? No. Um, in terms of the research and coordination, we, again, know that a lot is happening. Um, so we focused on a few areas where we thought there might be more, you know, more potential for Australia to work more um, with Southeast Asia. So things like, you know, more focus on the environmental activities and cooperation um, and uh, focus on tri-border area where we think there's a lot that can be studied and learned. Uh, the next ones are around strengthened maritime cooperation. Um, and we, we focused here on things like 
greater information sharing, greater analysis to improve maritime domain awareness. Um, so we have the example of the Singapore um, Fusion Centre uh, and in the Pacific, for example, Australia is doing a lot of work on the Pacific Fusion Centre. Uh, the question is, what more can we be doing in some of those areas? Um, we also had, I, I think, good case studies of the way that Australia has worked with countries in the region who were interested in getting capacity building help around um, uh, maritime security strategies. Um, and we had a strong sense, as I say, that, you know, we are doing some of these things in both the Pacific and Southeast Asia. Are we transferring lessons well enough? Now, I will keep going quickly because, as I say, I'm not the expert. I want to get to the experts. So the next one was around a single point of contact system. Um, I mentioned that Australia has 20 agencies, apparently, um, and that's what I could find out. I, I shudder to think what it's like if you're trying to, to work out who you should be contacting, if you're in Brunei, for cetera. like which bit of Australian government should I be calling? Um, so having having that single point of contact and encouraging regular dialogues, we think, is very valuable. We always put a plug in for strength and diplomatic engagement. Um, until recently, I thought no one was listening, but then I read the Defence Strategic Review on Monday and it looks like people do understand that our diplomatic engagement in the region is absolutely crucial, that if we're taking Australia's you know, security and prosperity seriously, it's not a job for just, say, defence. It's also very much one for diplomacy. And I, I'm excited to see that really coming into the discourse that this is not a job for defence alone. Um, we need to resource and respect all those arms of statecraft. Um, in terms of my last ones, uh, as I say, there is a civil maritime security strategy, but there is not an overall one. And I was having a talk with someone today who's had both military and civil roles and saying he just does find that quite difficult. So uh, that's, I think, something we can seriously be looking at. Um, and maybe that will fit in if somehow with some of the, the new planning systems that are coming out of the Defence Strategic Review. And then finally, um, and I'm sorry, I shouldn't have put it finally because I worry that we always put youth last, but we had a strong discussion on why this should be uh, a, a broad discussion among, um, uh, you know, many demographics and particularly for younger demographics to connect. Um, I was lucky enough to be involved, for example, in the ASEAN Australia Emerging Leaders Program when I was with AsiaLink, um, to be involved in the recent youth national security strategy. Those are the sort of processes where we could be using to try to increase more um, engagement and cooperation for young people across maritime security areas. So that, I hope I kept it to only a little bit over my time. That is the quick Cook's Tour. Don't feel you've learned it all. You still want to read the paper, but that at least gives you an idea what's in there and it can help you focus your questions for discussion. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Melissa, for that overview. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it, it really is a tremendous process that you have bringing together all of these experts. And I just want to say it can be very difficult to synthesise uh, different ideas that are coming from different experts. And the fact that you, you're able to do this, not just with this project, but with all of the projects that AP4D does, it's a real, it's a real use, it's very useful skill. So um, we're really grateful 
that this is the, the first edition of Blue Security and that it's able to provide this really rich summary uh, of perspectives from Australia and uh, um, Southeast Asia as well. Uh, but I want to turn to Aristio to get your view. I mean, coming from a, a, an Indonesia perspective, how do you see Indonesia's view on the key issues of maritime security in South Asia? Do they match up, for example, with what with some of the things that Melissa was talking about in her presentation? Right. Thanks. Thanks, Beck. Uh, first of all, thank you, Beck, and Latrop Asia and AP4D for inviting me to join this very wonderful launch of the very excellent paper of Melissa. And also want, I also want to congratulate Melissa and Kate, the lead editor, and everyone who were involved in the paper for this excellence and hopefully useful uh, paper uh, on, on maritime security. I'm sure it's not only interest of policymakers, but also academics and everyone who's really interested in know more about how Southeast Asia and Australia can, can collaborate in terms of maritime security. So I think if Indonesians, I think maritime securities and maritime issue has always been the primary concern of Indonesia. I think in the past few, few years, I think even we see how it reflects how Indonesia foreign policy engage with the regions. For example, how Indonesia trying to crafting the uh, ASEAN outlook on Indo-Pacific, focusing on maritime domain. And I'm really glad that the document endorsed and outlined the support of the ASEAN outlook on Indo-Pacific as well, a document that Indonesia uh, trying to architect behind and, and trying to draft it uh, more on towards the maritime affairs. So I think I'm really glad as that as well. And also, I think Indonesia uh, in the past few years has trying to seek leaderships in terms of like maritime security and maritime uh, corporations in the regions. For example, last year, Indonesia is the first uh, uh, countries uh, to host the ASEAN Coast Guard meeting. So indeed, Indonesia is trying to gain more leaderships in maritime security and also seek for more broader cooperations with the regions and also with extraterritorial, extra regional powers and, and, and other countries. So I think this document really fits with the context where Indonesia is heading to. I think it's, it's really nice and fits uh, the situations as well. Uh, and also, I think uh, in terms, if we if we see the maritime concern of Indonesia, I think it's always uh, nicely to fit it into the three categories: uh, the traditional security issues, the non-traditional security issues, and also the evolving environmental issues. I think a lot of discussions during the process as well, uh, as Malaysia mentioned, mentions, uh, there's a lot of differences of how Southeast Asia uh, countries uh, view maritime security, but there's always a, a lined up of of what are the common theme, it always uh, comes up from all Southeast Asian countries. For example, I think the papers highlighted that the uh, traditional issues of a maritime dispute, the South China Sea, it remains one of the biggest concern, even though not equally uh, uh, Southeast Asians view the South China Sea dispute as a threat, but I think it's 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 come up with for all countries, including Indonesia as well. I think even though we are not a claimant in the South China Sea, but if, uh, if you reviewed uh, the speeches and also the uh, comments from from defense minister, the South China Sea remain our biggest challenge as well. And 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 securing the rule of international law in maritime domain has always been Indonesian interest. Uh, in terms of the dynamics of the non-traditional security issues, I think in maritime domains, uh, Indonesia always also observing uh, quite closely. A lot of issues still happened. Uh, the, the sea armed robbery. Uh, piracy and IU fishing, the paper, also excellent paper that Liz launched, I think, last week. Also, it's, it's become one of the prime concerns of Indonesia, right? The statistical loss and of, of, of IU fishing for Indonesian's economy. 
the the impact of IE fishing to the environmental sustainability has always become an Indonesian's concern. I think, in fact, in the past few years, Indonesia uh, is trying to uh, push the IUU fishing as a to be recognized as transnational organized crime. So non-traditional security issues has always still become a concern of Indonesia. And lastly, I think what has becoming more and more important for countries in Southeast Asia and Pacific and also all over the world is the issues of the environment. I think the issues of climate change, the issue of sea level rise has become a uh, important issues as an archipelagic states itself, Indonesia, of course, the sea level rise become more and more important and a strategic concern. So I think uh, it's I, I really uh, delighted to see this document because it's really see the all these challenges from all these three strategic perspective, and it's it's very much interrelated. We, we cannot really talk about one single uh, issues. Uh, from one single perspective. Of course, for example, and when we talk about the IUU fishing, right, it's involved not only security issues. Indeed, it's involved the security issues, law enforcement. But if we really dig into the uh, core problems of IUU fishing, it's very much often an economic issues. It's a development issues, right? Even when we talk about the uh, Indonesian fishermen that being sank by Australians in, in Darwin, it's also because maybe they don't know uh, the level of economy, the level of needs that they are are are, are having. So I think it's it's very great to see this uh, maritime issues from these three perspective of defense, development, and also uh, def diplomacy issues, right? So I think uh, uh, Indonesians' uh, interest, as far as I observe now, the prime concern, the uh, it's it's really integrated in, in in this document, and I think it's it's yeah, it's it's really great to to see these uh, documents come into place. It's such an important point that you make about how maritime security challenges are interrelated, integrated, complex, multifaceted. Uh, as you point out with IUU fishing, uh, it's about, you know, it's a law enforcement issue, but it's also an economic issue, an environmental issue. And one of the things that I think is also interesting is the way that the pandemic affected IUU fishing. We saw uh, a significant increase, I think a 30-fold increase during the pandemic in incidents of IUU fishing in Australia's North Seas because of the effects on the economy and that question of, you know, kind of pushed Indonesian fishers down into, into waters. So I guess one of the, the questions that I have for you, Aristio, is um, going back to that kind of Australia and Indonesia cooperating on maritime security issues. One of the things that uh, Indonesia has done is, um, and, and Australia have sought to educate fishers on things like boundaries, very difficult to do in pandemic conditions. But broadly, you know, how, what are the, the opportunities and the limits uh, from your perspective on Australia and Indonesia's bilateral relationship when it comes to negotiating uh, maritime security issues? Right. Yeah, thanks. for. I think this is a very important question. And I think I want to start by uh, mentioning a bit about the challenge. I think uh, when we come about Indonesia and Australia bilateral relationship, it's not always smooth. It's like ups and downs, right? And it's a lot of factors, I think. Uh, Indonesia and Australia, I think much has been said how different uh, Indonesia and Australia are. Uh, we, we have a very different historical uh, background. We have a very different ge geographical situations. Australia is very much a continent uh, countries. Indonesia is an archipelagic countries. We speak a different language and, and the list goes on. But despite this very difference, uh, 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 we have also a lot of commonalities. But of course, these differences uh, shapes how 
we view things differently. For example, I think how we view Arcos, for example, it's we, we, we just naturally that we, we have a lot of differences uh, in viewing the world and viewing how the, the, the nature of, of, of things, right? But the fact that Indonesia and Australia share a significant maritime boundaries, I think it's, it's, it's the biggest modalities of how Indonesia and Australia have a common interest on how to make a good neighbors, right? A lot of, uh, I think, uh, maritime uh, or ocean is not only, se- it's not separating us, but I think it's connected us with a lot of issues that we have to tackle issues together, right? So I think if we talk about all of these ranging spheres of traditional, non-traditional and environmental issues, we have a very much common uh, issues that we can uh, tackle together. For example, in terms of like, um, traditional security. I think it's in the interest of Indonesia and Australia to have a secure rules-based maritime orders in the Indo-Pacific, right? In order how to secure and make sure that the United Nations Conventions on the Law of the Sea is being respected and being implemented nicely here in the regions. So we share that very basic ideas of how to create a peaceful sea and rules-based oceans, right? And if we talk about the issues of non-traditional securities, uh, how we uh, collaborations among law enforcement, I think is is hugely important, and also how to educate, I think, uh, peoples and law enforcement within uh, in this. Two countries, I think it's it's very much important. I think I'm really glad that Melissa uh, mentions uh, a lot about uh, important uh, aspect of, of the of the document. Uh, but I think it's it's uh, and a lot what what has been done by Indonesia and Australia. Of course, we we have we, it's not new, right? Maritime cooperations between Indonesia and Australia. In fact, we have a several documents of cooperations. I think we've we've done quite a quite okay. But of course, there's a lot of uh, uh, aspect that we can do better or how can we uh, do differently in order to uh, have a more executable and effective cooperations in maritime domains, right? Uh, for example, I think in terms of uh, educations, I think uh, uh, in the past few years, indeed, there has been a several uh, training for Indonesian law enforcement by the Australian National Center for Ocean Resource Anchors. I think it's also written in a document how important it is to have like a common understanding of UNCLOS. But I think, uh, and 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 I talked to my colleague from, from foreign ministries and the Navy who joined the training, they found it very useful, right? Because sometimes different institutions have a different interpretation and thoughts towards uh, the, the, the law of the sea, right? So having uh, brought together and discussions in one rooms, I think it's, it's really useful. And I can imagine how that can be extend toward not only Indonesian law enforcement, but law enforcement agency in Southeast Asia, right? So they can have a common understanding and common uh, uh, interpretations of, of UNCLA. So I think it's, it's, it's a really uh, nice as well. Uh, another thing uh, that I think uh, great from from the document, I think it's it's they have a, a very detailed case study, which I really appreciate because uh, it makes uh, the readers, uh, policymakers, have a much better understanding of of how far we've been through and what we can do differently, right? So it's it's really great. But coming back to your your questions on 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 the opportunities and the limits of cooperation, I think uh, of course uh, the limits is always. Uh, of trust uh, uh, and also, but but the opportunities and the shared interest that Indonesia and Australia can uphold, I think it's it's much much more uh, important, and I think it's 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 uh, yeah much more important for for both Indonesia and and Southeast Asia. Thank you. I might turn to you now, Charmaine. I mean, uh, 
there's an interesting kind of political situation, I guess, in, in the Philippines uh, where there's the 2016 arbitral tribunal ruling uh, came out, uh, but you had a, a government under Duterte that didn't really want to prosecute uh, that ruling. And now last year there's a, there's a shift uh, in government. Uh, I guess it's not really a new government anymore, uh, but I'm wondering, have you seen a shift uh, in terms of how the Philippine uh, government views key issues of maritime security under this new government? Hi, Beck. Um, hi, Melissa. Thanks for inviting me to this really fantastic panel. Um, it's an honor to be part of the project and to see its evolution and its development. Um, to go back to, to Beck's question, um, it's been a pleasant surprise, actually. And many Filipinos would echo this, that we, we all thought we were going to face another very difficult six years after President Duterte's administration. But so far, President Marcos has shown something different in terms of maritime security and in terms of um, a foreign policy. If just, just to put everything into context, under the, the presidency of Duterte, um, he did say that he was going to pursue an independent foreign policy. But his understanding of this pursuit of an independent po foreign policy was a separation from the United States and a pivot towards China. Um, this move towards China can be explain in the context of him needing much support for his drug war, for funding, for his flagship infrastructure projects. But the cost of that pivot to China was to set aside the 2016 arbitration award. So in many ways, that is the reason why we have not been able to leverage, to prosecute the 2016 arbitration award that was hugely in favor of the Philippines. Now, um, many factors are involved, um, not least of which is the pandemic, um, but towards the end of Duterte's term, he did return the, um, the U.S.-Philippine alliance to its original position. So, um, this, is, this is also because many of the projects that China promised were not forthcoming. Um, the Philippines was emerging from the pandemic, and it wasn't, and there were many challenges therein. So Duterte realized that the leaving the Philippines, um, now that he was leaving leaving the Philippines as president, it, it would be better off if he would put the Philippines in, in its original position vis-a-vis vis -vis the alliance with the United States. Now, <clears throat> at the beginning, Marcus was... Um, Marcos was supposed to be the continu continuity candidate. So in that sense, Marcos was also um, hot on, its, on his pursuit of an independent foreign policy. But the difference is, it looks like President Marcos understands that the pursuit of an independent foreign policy means the diversification of the country's international relations. This is why um, he did a lot of state visits to reintroduce the Philippines to the world as a reliable, excuse me, a reliable partner and credible and responsible member of the international community. In the last couple of months, President Marcos has also reinvigorated the alliance with the United States. Um, he ushered in the identification of four new sites under EDCA. He um, spearheaded the 2 plus 2 dialogue and the most recent Balikatan exercises. What's important is that there now seems to be a recognition 
that maritime security, at least from its from the geopolitical angle, is in view of a larger or broader um, context in um, in or situation in Taiwan. So in that sense, there there has been indeed a shift um, in maritime security under this new government or new-ish government. I like that, new-ish government. Um, yeah, so given this sort of change in the domestic political circumstance, which just really does point out that even though structural change matters, actually what happens inside of states also matters for, for international relations. Uh, but what do you see as the key areas in which Australia and the Philippines specifically can expand cooperation, particularly uh, in the area of, of maritime security, but also more broadly? I think um, Australia and the Philippines are on the right track um, in terms of their cooperation in maritime security, because both countries recognize that maritime security does indeed go beyond geopolitics. Um, Australia has really been the leader in the Philippines in terms of civil maritime security programs. Um, and I, I know that there are projects dealing with, um, for instance, and Aristio also mentioned this earlier, for instance, the fisheries issue, right? Maritime security is not just about, you know, sovereignty and territory. It's also about fish. It's also about food security. Um, it's also about human security, transnational crime, IUUF, law enforcement. Um, it's also about the environment. Uh, there is no doubt about the diversity of the ecosystems um, in, in the South China Sea and um, elsewhere. This is why Australia has been leading projects on, for instance, coral reef restoration, helping local communities create and launch and implement their marine protected area management plans, and so on. So I really hope to see Australia and the Philippines doing the, these civil maritime security programs even more, because at the end of the day, uh, maritime security will not be sustainable if it were not, if it did not have, you know, humans at its very core. I think that, yeah, again, there's that, that really important point that, that you raised there about, you know, the sort of the relationship between different security issues. Not everything is at that, you know, high geopolitical level, but it seems to me that one of the ways uh, in which Australia can cooperate with Southeast Asian states is on the day-to-day -day issue of maritime security and law enforcement uh, as a way of trying to, to, you know, assist in things like capacity building, but also being able to shape and order that respects international law uh, and, and, and order. So uh, thank you for those viewpoints. Now, I would love to see some more questions uh, in the Q&A because we do have about 20 minutes for, for Q&A. So please use the, the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen to put any questions. But I do have one uh, for both Aristio and Charmaine. Uh, and this is actually coming from Dr. Troy Lee Brown, who 
who I would like to give a shout out to as the program manager of Blue Security, who has been doing excellent work, uh, basically, you know, pulling together all of this uh, stuff, along with uh, Kate Clayton at Latrobe Asia, who has been doing a lot of work uh, in, in getting the publications up and running and, and putting this event and other events on. Uh, I would like to also say, Aristio, you mentioned um, global uh, sea level rise as being an issue for Southeast Asia, and I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's what our second issue addresses. So keep an eye out for that because it seems like there's been a lot of work uh, that, that's gone into the, the issue of sea level rise and how it affects maritime boundaries in the Pacific, but there hasn't actually been a whole lot of work done um, on the, the issue in Southeast Asia. So we're really looking forward to releasing that one next. But the question from Troy is, uh, what are the most important things that Australia can do to contribute towards a greater level of maritime governance and security in Southeast Asia? So uh, Aristia, I might go to you first and then I'll get your thoughts, Charmaine. Right. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Troy, for, for the questions. I think these are very tough questions, which is, I think, uh, can be viewed from a very different perspective from a different countries. But let me talk a little bit about uh, from Indonesia's perspective, maybe. So I think there are a lot of levels of maritime governance and maritime cooperations. But I think one of the fundamental things for like how maritime cooperations or any cooperations can be successful is about the level of trust. I think uh, the uh, level of trust between countries should be built by uh, programs by corporations, and once that we have a, a great level of trust, I think it, it, it it's it kind of setting up a, like a great foundational effort for any other corporations. And secondly, I think if we talk about maritimes uh, governance, I think in Indonesia, I think we talk about the two different levels. The first one, I think about the the regulation level. I think we're Indonesia are still struggling about that. We are now. We are. Uh, there has been an issues of make uh, in the past few years of making the new maritime security law. Uh, then it's not yet yet successful. Uh, it was in the in the in the in the House of Representative DPR, but then it was uh, bounced back again. But then the new ideas of amending the new fisheries law. The whole idea is like how to make a, a more simpler maritime governance. Really, uh, now we have uh, more than uh, eight institutions that have a maritime law enforcement authority at sea. We have more than fifteen regulations that amended law enforcement institutions. So it's very complex. And uh, I've done a research, uh, I think, in the past few years, where even like the users, the industries are struggling with the current existing maritime governance in Indonesia. So I think the first in the level of governance, I think uh, Indonesia can learn a lot from Australia. I think Australia is more coordinated with the border force and, and stuff. So I think the, in the regulations level of governance, I think it's important, right? Because it's going to be, become the fundamentals. And for example, the, uh, the discussions of creating a new maritime security law can be a really great uh, part for, for us to really think of our maritime security governance, right? So from the basic regulatory perspective. And the second one, maritime security is, of course, is a is a day to day law enforcement, right? We're dealing with everyday situations where we find an IU fishing in Indonesia's waters, or we find an intrusion of a foreign uh, warships in, a, in in our waters, or we're dealing with people smuggling. It's a daily base to be, uh, daily activities, right? So really building the capacity of the law enforcement authority, the uh, the enforcement uh, agency, it's it's very much important. And that's why I think I really appreciate that the document uh, uh, talk a little bit about how to create more collaborations in terms of 
uh, educations and training, for example. I think it's it's really uh, a significant part. Let's talk just about, about the law of the sea. I think the law of the sea in Indonesia is not well grounded, for example. Even for, I think, uh, a bachelor of law level, it, I think it's only 10% who studied law of the sea. And it's very much more difficult for the law enforcement later on when, when they're facing a daily uh, law enforcement issues about the knowledge. So I think uh, sharing knowledge, I think, and the document mentioned a bit on, on how can more training, for example, from, from anchors uh, to international law enforcement, it's, it's also, of course, important. Uh, so I think, uh, yeah, I think uh, the fundamental part is trust uh, between countries that should be built and maintained. And 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 we, we uh, collaboration should also be from the foundational regulatory perspective and sharing, and also the law enforcement activities, how they can create uh, more uh, capacity. But also, or for example, uh, 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 capacity uh, sharing not only like hard skill and also soft skill uh, it's, it's important as well so I think that's going to be my my take on, on that. Wonderful thank you Aristia that's a quite comprehensive list but Charmaine uh, your thoughts? I think uh, Australia can really contribute towards maritime governance in terms of um, I'm, I'm looking at this from the perspective of local coastal communities in the Philippines, okay? So I'm thinking more along the lines of capacity building in view of or in the context of marine protected area management plans. Um, the science is solid. So for instance, you know, there, there are a lot of projects on coral restoration um, and, and all of that. The science is solid, but, you know, it's the communities that would have to take care of these protected areas um, for their for their sustainability, for the project sustainability, for the benefit of the communities. However, if the communities themselves do not know or are not empowered enough to create their own management plans and to implement those management ma ma management plans, um, the 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 projects themselves will not really go beyond what the scientists have um, have done. So. So in this sense, um, I hope that Australia can really uh, commit to capacity building of local communities because, you know, ma marine protected area management plans, these are highly politicized things, right? It's about who manages it, uh, who manages the, the protected area, how do they manage it, which resources do they need to, to rely on? So I think um, if, the, if the communities are left um, by themselves to do this, they also wouldn't know how to complement their own actions with what they can gain from the um, from the scientific project. So I think there there needs to be a lot of guidance on what needs to be done, and and maybe best practices can be learned from Australia. Thank you. Uh, we have a wonderful question here from Prakash Gopal. Hi, Prakash. Uh, it's a question and a comment. Uh, so interestingly, Admiral Justin Jones, Commander of Maritime Border Command of Australia, met with uh, the Philippines Coast Guard Commander today. So there is a lot happening in this area. And the question is, uh, and it's a, a, a sort of add-on to Troy's question, I love this question. It's, it's a really good one. What is something that Australia should avoid doing so as to not jeopardise its relations with regional countries? So thinking, uh, for instance, something that uh, Indonesia and the Philippines might frown upon. So Aristio, I might turn to you first. Oh, you're on mute. Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. I was reading the second questions that is directly to my <laughs> 
So, so the questions would be, uh, what was that? So, uh, so maybe if you could just um, start with the, the question about um, what Australia should avoid doing, and then uh, a bit later on, I'll turn to the second question about maritime governance. Right, right. So, what Australia should be doing? I think this is a very interesting question, indeed. I think, uh, yeah, as I said, I think Indonesia and Australia relationship is always up and down, and also there's a lot of sensitive issues that always come up. Uh, uh, in these issues. I think uh, during the discussion of the paper, in fact, we also talk a little bit about what should be the limits, right, of what should we, you should not really uh, touch upon. Uh, I think, uh, well, I think there should be more communications, uh, for example, on, on any policy, right? For example, uh, let me give you an example on the sinking vessel policy of Australia, right? I think in the past, I think last year, mm-hmm. I think it was in the document as well that uh, 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 Australia sunk uh, Indonesian's fishing vessels, right? I think it's it's a, it's a policy that Australia made, and of course, under the sovereignty of Australia and Indonesia respected that, right? But I think in term that I think that that events create a, a bit of 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 tension, I should say, uh, that Indonesia cancels uh, 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 training is because of I think a lack of communications, right? Because of of course, Indonesia also support uh, the campaign or uh, enforcement against IUU fishing. I think it always has been Indonesia's uh, policy, but I think the lack of communications or prior notifications or consultations is of course I think sometimes make a, a bit of of challenge in terms of, of the law enforcement itself so i think uh is yeah yeah what what can be done to avoid any any more like small escalations on on, on that is like to keep more uh communications uh that's why i think uh in, in what melissa proposed in the documents of having a single point of contact it's really important so any mechanisms any enforcement that will be done i think if, if it's communicated well i think it's 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 avoid uh any unnecessary tensions between Indonesia or Southeast Asia and Australia. And I might return back to that point of maritime governance in Indonesia, but Charmaine, I first wanted you to respond to that question about what would the Philippines frown upon uh, Australia doing? Well, Australia, I think, should avoid skipping consultations with local stakeholders, um, because oftentimes what happens is, you know, external partners would just come in to local communities and say, hey, you know, we've got this document, we've got this plan, what do you think? Right. So instead of doing that, um, I think many local communities would um, appreciate you know, working from scratch, like, okay, we've got a problem, let's work together, let's work on a draft together, instead of having a draft imposed on them. So I think um, that's, that's something that would be, um, that would be worthwhile for Australia and the Philippines to do, to really hold genuine and organic consultations with local stakeholders. Great answer. Thank you. Uh, so returning to uh, to your Aristio with maritime governance, uh, Australia and Indonesia have co-op- long cooperated on maritime security. However, most of it has been on joint patrols and fisheries. So um, the, the, the person who's asking this question is particularly interested in the possibility of best practices sharing in maritime government, uh, governance. So believing in infrastructure, both bilaterally and multilaterally, is already in place. But in your view, how how might Indonesia and Australia overcome the issue of political will in implementing these changes? Right. So if I got uh, Dharma, thanks for the questions. Uh, if if I understand the questions correctly, it's because of best practice, what, what we can learn from Australian practice. Uh, if, if that's correct, I think 
one of the most more effective uh one of the good things what i observe from how uh, maritime law enforcement in australia is the uh unified australian maritime border force i think it's it's really great practice and where all the resources quite a pool in one institutions and it's quite effectively uh, in doing the law enforcement because the, the issues in Indonesia now is that the law enforcement agency is scattered through so many different institutions. I'm sure that you are really aware of this as well. And I think it has become an issue. For example, uh, one uh, uh, cargo ships is being inspected by uh, several institutions. And it's really it's really a challenge for, for in the Indonesian maritime industry, really. And I, and I think uh, the best practice of how Australia create is uh, law for example, in, in, as a basis for, for the border force, how the technicalities, for example, of how the maritime border force operated, I think it's something that is really useful for Indonesia to learn how to create like a firm legal basis for an institutions, uh, such an institutions and how the, the works of this uh, one single agency in tackling uh, most of the maritime issues. I think it's, it's the best uh, uh, thing I should say we can learn from from Australia, but of course, as you mentioned, the the challenge is is huge in Indonesia. There's a political tensions between each institutions. There is uh, issues of uh, of of I don't know bureaucracy and egoisms where they want to still keep the budget for different institutions. So, but but I think back to your questions, uh, the, the 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 best thing what I can come up now is that how we can create like uh, an agency like the Australian uh, Board Maritime Border Force. Uh, it's an interesting uh, set of issues with with border force, which you know, from a, from a kind of Australian or my perspective personally, has tended to be um, quite inwardly focused, particularly politically focused on issues of irregular migration. And so, uh, there's also this this sense, I think, um, uh, that there's recurring question in Australian maritime security circles about whether Australia actually needs a coast guard. Um, so. You know that would that would kind of uh, create a, a sort of different entity uh, that might be able to uh, to really unify that kind of international outlook with the with the domestic outlook as well. So, um, and and Scott Edwards, who is in uh, who is watching, has just um, submitted a question about this broader question about whether Australia actually needs a, a coast guard, uh, and it's about um, the discussion about the the single point of contact. Uh, what would the pathway for a single point of contact be? With law enforcement, as you've discussed, Aristio, it would suggest ABF, exactly who, who you've mentioned. Uh, but for Charmaine's discussion on the environment, uh, would it be better if there was some sort of form of environmental agency? And with Australia's current system, can there actually be a useful single point of contact? I think that goes back to um, the question of the Coast Guard for one, but it also goes back to the fact that there are 20 different, at least 20 different agencies in Australia working on maritime security, and they don't actually have a joined up strategy or approach. It's still very siloed, which is quite interesting when we think about, you know, the era of the grey zone threat where the civil and military are becoming increasingly blurred and, you know, these threats are transnational rather than being just internal or just external. So, Aristia, I might get your response to, to that question. Right. Yeah, of course, I think uh, a single point of contact in Australia, I think Melissa would be becoming 
of course, more authoritative to answer than that. But I think I would agree that it, it, it remains important to have like a single point of context. Of course, I think maritime issues is by nature, it's very complicated. It's involved a lot of aspect. It's sometimes it's very difficult to handle for one, only one institution. We talk about customs, we talk about environmental issues, we talk about uh, traditional and non-traditional security issues, right? But uh, by nature to have like a single point of context, more or less like an, a coordinated or like one institutions that can uh, be asked or like, uh, yeah, for any any uh, issues that happen, I think it's important. In the case of Indonesia, I think we now uh, trying to uh, make the Bakamla, uh, the Indonesian Coast Guard. Now we have the like, two Indonesian Coast Guard formally. We have the Bakamla and KPLP, both claim to be Coast Guard. Both uh, the English, both name is, is Coast Guard. But I think the political commitment of, of, of President Jokowi is to make the Bakamla now as like the single point of contact in Indonesia. And that's why now they're, they're equipped with the, uh, uh, they have like now the, the information, uh, Mar Maritime Information Center, or those kind of things where like the Navy, the Ministry of Marine Affairs uh, should uh, report all the uh, informations to Bakamla. So that's the idea is creating for any foreign institutions or foreign countries that are interested in knowing about informations in Indonesia, the Bakamla is going to be the single point of contact. So despite, I think, the nature complexity of maritime issues and governance, I think to have one uh, maritime uh, uh, contact, maritime issues, it's maritime institutions that are responsible for like the data and stuff. I think it's it's remain important. And that's the case of, of Indonesia, I think. And I think Dharma has put a response in the chat for you. So it's good to see the conversation is happening uh, on different levels here. Uh, and Charmaine, I might get your response on the whether you've got any thoughts on the single point of contact. I think all countries actually need a single point of contact because I think what's common amongst all three of our countries is that we don't have that single point of contact. In fact, you know, coming from, from the Philippines, what we need is an overarching um, maritime security policy. Um, because right now we rely on maritime law enforcement and we've got a lot of agencies with overlapping mandates and overlapping areas. And what ends up happening is that all of these agencies compete with each other. And, you know, the result is increased maritime insecurity. Um, so I, I would argue that at least, you know, domestically, this is something that the national government can do and should do, not just, um, not just create a national security policy, but create a policy specifically for um, maritime security. I agree. I think that is one of the overarching themes is that the countries don't have uh, clear maritime security strategies, or if they do, they're only really sub-strategies that fail to reconcile the integrated nature of security threats. And, and it's important that these states articulate those to sort of you know, increase trust, reduce, um, you know, uh, misunderstanding. There's important reasons, I think, for having declaratory policy around these strategies. One last question I'm going to, to squeeze in from Pooja Bhatt. Hi, Pooja. Thank you for joining us. Um, under the larger umbrella of common understanding of maritime security, in what uh, issues, what issues could be the low-hanging fruit, uh, as well as the hard and soft limits for Australia and Indonesia cooperation, but I'll also um, refer to Australia-Philippines cooperation, uh, not just in terms of bilateral cooperation, but also in terms with how they might uh, cooperate with a third party uh, such as India. Right. Very interesting questions. Uh, so I think uh, the low-hanging fruit would be 
more uh, training, uh, more capacity building, more joint training. I think it's it's always well. It's it's it sounds easy, but I think it's it, it might be low hanging fruit where we can like uh, creating inviting an Australians uh, scholars to to make like to bring all the uh, people from different law enforcement agency to sit together and discuss stuff. Uh, top table exercise. I think this kind of, of, of activities make, I think, a better, a common understanding perspective between law enforcement agency in Indonesia. Uh, but I think, uh, as you said, uh, as, as your questions, what would be like the, the ideals involvement of, of, of third parties? I think it's, uh, I think the, the ideas uh, of, of Indonesia and in Southeast Asia, I think we really welcome more uh, involvement, uh, more cooperations with uh, many countries, right? Including India, of course. I think Indonesia with, for example, leading the initiative of Southeast Asian Coast Guard Forum. I think uh, I think more and more in the future, I think it, I, 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 I would say that Indonesia would agree to have more like a, a third country's involvement. I think we are already in the ASEAN Coast Guard uh, Forum, right? Where ASEAN Coast Guard together with the uh, other Coast Guard from 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 India, for examples, and stuff. So I think uh, uh, I think uh, the idea is that uh, Indonesia is willing to welcome cooperations, collaboration with more and more countries as many as possible uh, in regions. Thank you. And Charmaine, your response? I think a low hanging fruit um, would be IUUF. Um, and I say this because I think this is a this is a, a phenomenon that is now considered practically illegal across the board. So I think that's 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 one area where all of us can start and it's not very it's not as sensitive as you know the the contested areas in the South China Sea and, and all that. Um, apart from that, IUUF is also a cross-cutting, it also involves cross-cutting issues. So for instance, you know, fisher folks who engage in IUUF despite knowing that it is illegal and that they're not supposed to do that, um, you know, um, they encounter disability issues as a result of engaging in those, those practices. Um, and what happens now to, to those fisher folks? and all that. So I think, you know, this is this is one area where where countries can really cooperate on. It's a low hanging fruit. It's not very sensitive. So there's a lot of ground that we can cover. Thank you very much. And there is one final question. Um, Carl Lindbergh points out we haven't really talked much about China. And, you know, that's uh, unfortunately we won't get into that issue. I think it's a fair point to, to make. But it also, I think, reflects the fact that there are different ways of thinking about maritime security. And that's part of the issue is that it does, it can get siloed out between the national security dimensions of maritime security and those more civil or non-traditional law enforcement elements of national security. So I'm afraid that we won't have time to talk about that, but I did want to offer Melissa um, a chance to, to comment. Uh, you, you, you know, you've heard the sort of responses to the joint agenda from our experts, uh, and you might want to give a plug to the other papers that you have in the works as well. Oh, I think I've been doing that already. So look <laughs> in the chat if you want to see any of the other papers. But uh, perhaps I can respond a little bit to Carl's question just in my, my final comment. Um, I, I think it's really important that we don't uh, we don't see Australia's um, you know relationship and engagement with Southeast Asia through a prism of great power competition. We know really strongly that that's not what the region wants from us. That comes through every time we do any conversations or any consultations. And it's a real danger that we're seen in that way, that we're seen as, oh, you only care about these issues because you're trying to push back against China. 
Um, I would say Australia's engagement with Southeast Asia is vitally important if in and of itself. And I actually deliberately try to under-discuss the China aspect whenever I'm talking about these issues. Yes, there's been no shortage of commentary on the South China Sea. Uh, so, yeah, that's a good point. Thank you, Melissa. And uh, thank you to uh, Melissa and Charmaine and Aristio for sharing your thoughts and your expertise today. Uh, look, really interesting chat. And I'm just delighted uh, that we will soon be able to send all of those who have registered uh, for the event today uh, a copy of, a soft copy of uh, the, uh, the first issue of the Blue Security publication, uh, which is, I saw the, 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 the final draft today and it looks spectacular. It's very, got a very maritime look about it. So very excited to, to see that and hope that you all get, get a lot from the publication. Uh, but please do follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia if you don't already. Uh, join our mailing list uh, to find more details for online events and Latrobe Asia publications. Uh, this event has also been recorded, so we will send the link to it as well as the, the publication when those are ready. So uh, have a great evening, everyone.